The text this morning is uh, Psalm 77. This is prayer in the day of trouble. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up in his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. My guess is that if I asked for a show of hands uh, and asked you how many of you would say Psalm 77 is one of your top 10 favorite psalms, one of your go-to psalms, I probably wouldn't see too many hands. I wouldn't raise my hand until recently. It, it hasn't been over the years one of my top even 25 or 30 or 35 psalms. But it's a powerful psalm, and recently it's become a powerful one for my wife and I because she was diagnosed with a very serious, rare, aggressive cancer right after Christmas, had surgery in January. This spring we were told there was a recurrence and a spread. It's nasty stuff. She's going through chemo now and is really hard. But this psalm jumped out at her this spring, a couple months into this battle with cancer. It impacted her in a big way. She said, let's read this together, and we've been pondering it a lot ever since. That's why I chose it for today. In the NIV, it's called prayer. It's called, in the day of trouble, the title at the top, I seek the Lord. This is a man of God who is wrestling, who is moaning, who is struggling, who is honest with some big questions he has for the Lord. 
And fortunately, by the end of the psalm, there's a resolution and there's hope. But I love the psalm because like so many, there is this raw honesty about the struggle that he's going through. We don't know what it was, but in a sense that makes it better to apply to all of the kinds of troubles that we go through. And like Job said, man is born to trouble. As the sparks fly upward, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. We face a lot of trouble. And uh, I don't know what your day of trouble has looked like recently or what it will look like in the future, but I can imagine in a group this size that you can relate to days, weeks, months of trouble just like my wife and I can during this season. Perhaps you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis or another serious diagnosis, perhaps the death of a loved one, perhaps an unexpected job loss, perhaps the heartache over a covenant child who's turned away from the Lord and said, I don't want to have anything to do with the faith anymore. Perhaps betrayal by a friend, betrayal even by a spouse. It's not a question of if you and I will face trouble. It's a question of when. We live in a very broken world. And because of that, this psalm is so helpful because we see the honesty, but we also see how he learns to preach the truth to himself and find hope. So we're going to look at it under three headings, the cry of distress, which is the first nine verses, then the need for remembrance and the hope of deliverance. The cry of distress, the need for remembrance, and the hope of deliverance. The first nine verses are the cry of distress. And again, you see some of the the language that he uses there. My soul refuses to be comfort. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. He's saying, the God that I know, and he has remembrances of the Lord's work in the past, but he's saying right now, the God that I've known in the past doesn't seem to be here doesn't seem to be working, and I'm in agony over it. I heard a woman quoted, I think this was from a blog, but she was honest about her struggle, and she said, not too long ago, it seemed as though God had packed up, moved far away, and left me no forwarding address. I felt abandoned, confused, and terribly alone. Have you ever felt that way? I think if we're honest, most of us have at one time or another, especially as we go through times of trial and trouble. And that's where this psalmist is at. That's what he's experiencing. And look, at the, look again in your Bible at the questions that he asks in verses 7 through 9. They are intense questions. In fact, if you were in a prayer meeting, with some brothers and sisters or a small group here, and you started praying some of the kinds of questions that he's asking in 7 and 9, I bet your brothers and sisters will look at you and say, whoa, (laughs) what's happening to John? What's happening to Mary? We better pray for their faith. These are intense questions. He's saying, Lord, will you never again show your love? Has your love ceased? Are you not paying attention to your promises? What am I to make of this season I'm going through? Uh, The little comic strip 
Calvin and Hobbes, uh, a number of years ago, they had one where Calvin, who's this six-year-old boy, nothing to do with John Calvin, our theological hero. This is, this is Calvin in the comic strip, and it's late November, and he has his sled, and he's hoping for snow. And he goes outside, and he says, okay, God, one, two, three, snow. Nothing. He says it again. I said, snow. Nothing. And then he says, what's the problem, God? Do you want me to become an atheist? <laughs> you know, he wants God to do what he wants on his time. To I don't think the psalmist has a raw kind of selfishness like that where he's saying, what's wrong, God? I'm losing my faith. But he's honest. These are not just rhetorical questions. He's honest about the struggle he's going through. And when I read things like this in Scripture, sometimes I say, I can't believe these kinds of questions are in God's Word. The prayer book, the song book of Israel. But why does the Lord put them in His Word? I think of Psalm 88, which ends really in darkness, where, where the psalmist is saying, darkness is my closest friend. Psalm 39 which ends with these words. The psalmist says, says, look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Really? That's how the psalm ends? Most of the psalms find some resolution. But I think the Lord puts these things in Scripture, as Derek Kidner, the commentator, said, God puts these things in Scripture because the Lord knows how we pray when we are desperate. And he invites us to be honest with him. I don't know about you, but I tend to be a stuffer. When I have doubts, questions, frustration, even anger, I tend to stuff it. Some people are at the other end of the spectrum, and they vent everything. And if they have an intense emotion, it's going to come out. It's going to come out in every, every which way. I don't think the Lord wants us to either be stuffers or venters. I think what we see in the Psalms is the Lord wants us to be honest with our struggles, with our doubts, with our questions, with our fears, but he wants us to come to him in prayer and ask him to meet us there. And that's what you see in Psalms like this, and I love it that it's right there in the Bible. You know the whole story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, sold into slavery by his brothers all these years in Egypt, thrown unjustly into prison. He's away from his family for years. It's an amazing story, but the one thing I wish we had was a record of his prayers during that long stretch because clearly he did not lose his faith Clearly, the Lord held on to him. He held on to the Lord. At the end of it, he understood what the Lord was doing. He's able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But I wish we had a record of his prayers, but I bet his prayers were like this. How do you pray when you don't understand? I bet at times Joseph was saying, Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you still love me? Do you still care? Are you still in charge? I bet he asked questions like that. 
But somehow, again and again, the Lord assured him that he was there. And he was able to believe that the Lord was good. I'm even more impressed by Job, who never got an explanation in this life about what the Lord was up to. And as one commentator about Job said, uh, and I'm sure he prayed many prayers like this, the Lord called Job to really a naked faith. There was never an explanation of why he went through the suffering that he did. And in the end of his life on this earth, he never saw the big picture. But guess what? He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord and he worshiped him. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. Well, verses 1 to 9 are the cry of distress. But then he moves in, in verse, verses 10 to 15 to remembrance. And all the commentaries say that verse 10 is the pivotal verse of this psalm. It's the, it's the turning point. It's parallel to Psalm 73 when the psalmist there is struggling and envious and confused, and he describes himself as a brute beast. And then in, in one of those verses he says, and then I went into the sanctuary of God, and that's when everything began to turn. Verse 10 here is where everything began to change for, this, for the writer of this psalm, and it's because he starts to remember God's goodness, and he starts to preach the truth to himself. And look at the language in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. What does he mean by that? You know, we're used to the language of appeals, that lawyers will appeal the decision of a court and appeal it to a higher court because they disagree with the judgment that's been made. What, what's, what's he doing here? He's really arguing against himself and his own heart. His own heart has come to a conclusion that everything's hopeless, that the Lord's not here, the Lord doesn't love me. And he says, I am going to appeal to something higher than the judgment of my heart, and that is the character and the track record of God over the years. And you see him using language, especially verses 11 and 12, a remember, remember, I remember, I ponder, I meditate. The other thing that's going on that you may notice in these verses is he starts speaking to the Lord, not about the Lord. Verses 1 to 9, he's mostly speaking about the Lord in the third person. He, 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 he. And now he's going more directly to the Lord and saying, your goodness your faithfulness, your deeds, I remember those. He's preaching to himself. As uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones many years ago said, one of our biggest problems in life is that we tend to listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. And here he's stepping outside of himself and saying, listen, remember the truth about who the Lord is. A woman named Evelyn Underhill once said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. I love that. And I think the psalmist is coming to that point where he's facing the fact that the Lord is big even though he can't understand him. And he's allowing his heart to go ahead and worship him and trust him though he can't understand this trouble and the trial that he's going through. Elizabeth Elliot tells a great story 
about an experience she had visiting a friend who was a sheep farmer in Wales a number of years ago. And because of the attacks of insects and parasites on the sheep, the shepherd, uh, John, uh, a couple times a year, needed to put all of his sheep in a vat of insect-killing antiseptic. But the sheep hated it. <laughs> and she watched it happen, happen one time when she was there. And he'd bring all the sheep into this big vat, and Mac, the, the sheepdog, would bark at them to try to keep them in, in the vat when they were trying to escape. And, and John, the shepherd, would grab them by the head when they were trying to escape out, out the ramp, and he would grab them firmly and push them under this liquid, ears, eyes, nose, everything, for a few seconds for their good, even though he didn't, they didn't understand it. And Elizabeth Elliot said, as I looked at those sheep looking up at John, who they thought till that point loved them, <laughs> I could tell they were all saying, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? She said, there have been many times in my life when I felt exactly like those sheep, looking at the Lord, saying, Lord, what are you doing? Maybe you know her story. Her first husband was killed by, by those in South America that he was trying to reach as a missionary back in the 50s. Lord, what are you doing? She said, those sheep didn't get an explanation from John the shepherd. And I've never received explanations from the Lord, intellectual explanations about why certain things happened to me but she said, I have found a peace. And that peace isn't in an intellectual argument, but that peace is in a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's where you and I can find peace as we go through times, times of trouble, just like this psalmist did. He found peace in the Lord because he knew the Lord's goodness. So a number of years ago, my wife, uh, uh, like your refrigerator, probably is. Our refrigerator is filled with missionary cards and sayings and quotes and all kinds of things. One thing my wife put on our refrigerator years ago is a little saying that says, if I knew what God knows, I would want exactly what I have today. If I knew what God knows, I would want exactly what I have today. It's a great statement of faith. I love it. And I think we were going through some hard times when Sue put that on the refrigerator. But it's one thing to put that on theoretically. It's another thing to still have it on your refrigerator when you're battling a very serious and aggressive cancer. But it's still there. My wife hasn't taken it down. It's still there because she still believes it as hard as it is in the midst of what we're going through. And I believe it as hard as it is. The Lord is good all the time, even when we can't understand what he's doing or why we're going through what we're going through. 
The last part of this psalm we can call the hope of deliverance. <clears throat> 10 to 15 is the, the need for remembrance. Then 16 to 20 is the hope for deliverance. And when you read these verses, I'm sure you saw it as we read them through. It's pretty clear what, what the psalmist is referring to. He's referring to the Exodus. He's referring to the parting of the Red Sea. He talks about the Lord's actions in the past, delivering his people. Uh, um, your way, verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. He's remembering that climactic moment of the Exodus when the Lord had told, you remember the story, I'm sure, the Lord told his people, told Moses to have them camp out in what turned out to be a very vulnerable position. And Pharaoh changed his mind, and Pharaoh and his army is coming behind them, and the sea is in front of them. From a human point of view, they are in an absolutely impossible position. Their only hope for deliverance is a miraculous work of God. And in that context, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And of course, you know the story. The Lord worked. Though his footprints were not seen, as the passage says, he parted the sea. The people of God were delivered. They were delivered by a miraculous intervention through a man, Moses, delivered from bondage and slavery to freedom as God's people. And now you and I sit here today experiencing the blessing of a much greater exodus through a miraculous intervention of the Lord, through a man, Jesus, <clears throat> his work on the cross, deliverance from bondage and slavery to sin into citizenship in his kingdom as his people. <clears throat> and you and I can rejoice. The message of the cross is this, that because Jesus, and you know this, but let me remind you of it, that because, of Jesus, because Jesus was abandoned by the Father, because he was forsaken by the Father, because the weight of the law and the penalty of sin fell on him, you and I will never be abandoned, never forsaken. The weight of our sin will never fall on us. And the Lord's promise is true, and it stands forever, that he will never leave you nor forsake you if you trust in him. I love the way um, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, ends, where and the, it's put into the language of the Lord speaking to us. And he says to you, the soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Some of you may know the story behind the hymn, um, It Is Well With My Soul, which actually I saw in the bulletin, we're going to sing it the second service right after the sermon, and it's very fitting. But the story behind that hymn, that great hymn of the faith, it is well, is that the author, Horatio Spofford, who was a very successful lawyer in Chicago, in 1871 lost everything that he owned in a great fire in Chicago. Two years later, 
his wife Anna, and their four daughters were on a ship to England. The ship had an accident. All four of the girls were drowned. And he received a wire from his wife when she, she got to England saying, saved alone. As a father and a grandfather, I just can't imagine the grief, the sorrow that he was experiencing. Of course, he traveled, got to the East Coast, got on a ship, and it was while he was crossing the Atlantic, my understanding is that he wrote as well with my soul that has blessed so many people for, for over 100 years. What was it that enabled Horatio Spofford to find peace and hope in the midst of sorrow, overwhelming sorrow and grief like that? And why, in writing that, that hymn, did he end up using language like this? Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then a whole verse about his sin. Why is he thinking about his sin? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Why at a time like that is he thinking of his sin? And the work of Christ on the cross, he's preaching the gospel to himself. He's reminding himself, number one, I am not being punished for my sin in these big losses that I've experienced because all of the weight of the punishment for my sin has already fallen on Jesus. And if I have a question about does God care Does God really care for me and my wife in the midst of these losses? He reminds himself by those truths that, yes, God cares. Because he lost a son, his only son. He gave his only son for us at great cost. And that's a demonstration of how much he loves us. That's... Here's a man thinking and praying himself into peace in the midst of unbelievable grief and sorrow. And I think it's, in a sense, it's what the psalmist is doing in, in this psalm. You all know the story of what the Lord called Abraham to do in Genesis with, with Isaac at Mount Moriah. He called him to take him up, prepare the fire. The knife was there. The Lord had called him to sacrifice his, his only son. And at the last moment, when it seems like the knife was raised, the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear me because you were willing to give your son, your only son, for me. In a much more significant way for us, we look at Mount Calvary where the sword of justice was not held back. There was no voice that said, stop that punishment. There are no legions of angels to show up to take Jesus off the cross. He suffered for us. And as we look at that, you and I can say, now I know. Now I know that you love me, Lord. Now I know as I look at what you've done. for, And no matter, that means that no matter what I go through in this life, I can have that confidence and that hope no matter what I experience.
This is a psalm where we see this transition from weeping and crying to hope and joy. Has the pain gone away? I don't think so. We don't have an indication of that. But he finds hope in the Lord because he remembers who the Lord is. I don't know what your day of trouble is like or your week of trouble or month or season or decade of trouble. But I do know that like me, if you're not facing something now, you probably will in the future. We live in a fallen world. How do you pray during a season of trouble? I think Psalm 77 gives us a wonderful template, a wonderful example of how to go to the Lord, how to find our hope in Him, how to preach the truth to ourselves, how to remember what He's done for us. And remember the truth of Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely, graciously give us all things? Tim Keller has a little devotional on the Psalms called the Songs of Jesus. And uh, just a few weeks ago I read his reading on Psalm 81 where the Lord talks about blessing his people and bringing them honey out of the rock. And this is the prayer, which I think is very fitting for us this morning. Ponder this as we conclude here. Lord, you have been with me long enough to prove yourself. Out of one rock after another, you have brought a sweetness that overwhelms the bitter. Yet here I am in another hard place where I am doubting you. Forgive me. I will trust you in this. Amen. May the Lord give us grace to trust him. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you know us perfectly, that you know where we're at, you know the hard places uh, that are represented here this morning. But thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for how you've demonstrated your perfect, infinite love for us in Jesus. And uh, in those areas where we struggle and where we doubt and where we question even this morning, uh, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us Forgive us for questioning your goodness. Help us to trust you. Help us to give ourselves to you completely. Thank you, Lord. You are good. You are good. You are good all the time. We pray in your name. Amen.